0: Well, this morning I want to invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to continue um, a study through the book of Philippians. And one of the things I tried to make clear when we began this study is that while joy or rejoicing is certainly a theme that we see developed throughout this passage, there's another theme that, in, from, that as I walk through just reading Philippians again and again and again that just really emerged, and it was this. Humility, that humility characterizes everything that Paul says. From the very first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. There's this humility that is cloaked around Paul, that he is a servant to the church, his posture of prayer for the church, his service for the church. All of these things, there is humility. But humility is one of those things that we often, I think, will hold in contrast to something called confidence. Confidence that those things seem opposite one another. If you're confident, then often you're arrogant. You know, there's an arrogance. But is there such a thing as a humble confidence? A humble confidence. Perhaps there was some humble confidence last night in Tiger Tiger Stadium in Death Valley when our coach made the call to go for a two-point conversion rather than just kicking the extra point. Watching his press conference afterwards, he said, if you told me there was one play where we beat Alabama, to all of you Alabama fans, I'm so sorry. I know this is a time of mourning, I know. So, but if there was one play, he said, a hundred out of a hundred times, I would take it. A hundred out of a hundred times, I would take that play. What if, for us, there is a way of understanding A a truth that if we lock in, that a a hundred out of a hundred times it changes the outcome of our lives. It, It changes the way that we move forward with opposition and difficulty and suffering. That a hundred out of a hundred times it changes everything. Well, I submit to you today that there is such a truth and it's found here in this passage. And so I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's word this morning. As I read from chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and I'm going to read down to verse 26. And you follow along as I read aloud. I'm going to begin kind of at the the end of verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation. Through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Lord, I pray that you will make clear what it means to live as Christ and to die as Game. and that that will change our lives forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Humble confidence, a humble confidence. That's what is on display in this passage today. A humble confidence in this situation. To remind you, it's clear from the context that we have a man who is imprisoned, and not because he did something he shouldn't have done, but because he was being faithful to the gospel. And the result of being faithful to the gospel was a disruption in the economics and in the way of life and in a a whole religious system called Judaism. It was interrupting things. It was making things inconvenient. People were getting upset. And it resulted now in the imprisonment of this faithful servant An apostle named Paul. And Paul is still faithfully serving. And and that faithfulness to the Lord is actually resulting in a a strengthening of the existing believers that are there where he is. So that they're being even more faithful with the gospel. And so we're already seeing how he's developing this idea that God can bring good out of what the evil one meant for harm. Um, And so that's an important principle for us to hold on to. But as we turn to this passage and we consider this theme of humility, all of a sudden we see this unbelievable confidence that Paul has despite his circumstances. I mean, it's really hard to wrap your mind sometimes around what it means to be imprisoned. And in some ways, falsely. It's not because you've done something wrong or criminal. It's just because of accusations. And then to know that that could actually result in your death. I don't know that there's maybe any of us in this room, perhaps, that have ever experienced that same that same plight, where truly we looked at our circumstances and we said, "I have no freedom," and and I'm facing execution. And it's all because I belong to Christ. And so I think that we need to give some, some reverence to this passage, some, some reverence to, to Paul that what he's going through is, is really intense and really unique. And it's not light. And he wasn't wanting us to just extrapolate from it um, just, you know, some tips on how to have a better week this week. This is life and death stuff. I mean, this is his life about to end for the sake of the gospel. And that is supposed to impact us. And not just, would I be willing to die for the gospel? That's often where we go with these things. It's just like, would I? Well, very few of us will probably face that reality. But it should cause us to ask additional questions. Am I living for the gospel? Is my life right now reflection of the same value system that if I were ever imprisoned, for the sake of the gospel, that I would be willing to die for it? Do I have right now as as my purpose, the same purpose that Paul had, regardless of the confinement of my faith? And so it's important for us to see that as Paul is communicating about these things, that he is wanting to inflict us, if you will, with the same confidence, but also the same humility. It's this both he wants there to be a humility in the body, but he also wants you to be as confident as young lions. How do we do this? How do we achieve such a mix in this life to where there is a humble confidence in us as his people? Well, let's look at his word to see if it explains these things. Paul begins with, yes, I will continue. But when he begins to communicate and to develop as we reach verse 19, is this, that because we are in Christ, we have hum- humble confidence in God's promise. We, we have this humble confidence in God's promise. Now, why is there a humility? Because we didn't do anything to earn the promise, right? We, let's just all get on the same page about that. Salvation is God's gracious gift to sinners, Let's just all be on the same page there. We didn't do something to earn salvation. This was the free gift of God given to all who believe. That's very important for us to all be on the same page about so that then when we experience this promise of salvation, we realize that it also is just a gift of a gracious God. God is not only just saving you momentarily or saving you sometime in the future, but right now in your life, God is working his salvation in your life day after day, moment after moment, and will ultimately save you in the day of Christ. So we've been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And all of these things are communicated throughout the scripture, but what Paul moves into here is that we have been given a promise, and that promise is changing how he views his current circumstances. I want you to see it. He says, yes, I will continue to rejoice because I know, and the word know there is this perfect tense verb which is communicating that I I know it now, but it's going to affect every day going forward. It has continuing effect in my life. So what is it he knows right now that is also going to affect the future for him? He says, I know, if I can get back to my place there, this will lead to my salvation, future tense. So I know something right now that will result in my salvation in the future. Now, you might look at this and say, well, maybe what he meant was that he's going to get out of jail. Like, that's the salvation he's talking about. And that's what we're always tempted to kind of just settle into right now, is that whatever it is hard that we're going through right now, that we should just believe that it's going to work out. That, that, you know, if I if I have a, a diagnosis, that it, I'm going to get the all clear. Or if, if I've got, you know, a financial difficulty, it's, it's all going to Going to work out. Um, if there's a relational difficulty, it's, it, you know it's all going to be resolved and, and, and restored. But it doesn't always work out that way. And, and when we buy into the movement, which is the the word faith movement, where you know you speak it into existence, so, you know you just name it and then claim it that it's going to happen. What you get when life doesn't work out that way, because just you know, spoiler alert: Paul died. Okay, just. We need to acknowledge that. Paul, Paul did die, and so he wasn't just naming and claiming his victory over everything. He then goes down just a little bit further and says, so that I'll be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's already taking out of the mix this, I'm going to get out of jail. I know it. Everything's going to work out for me. Everything's going to be fine, no difficulties. No, he says, "You know, I'm convinced that I'm going to honor Christ whether I live or die that's radically different than the way that we are programmed right now here in America to think as Christians. We're constantly being flooded with a message of just like think powerful thoughts. Just just think your way, you know, into greatness and all of these things, but Paul's attitude is just so cloaked with humility that he still has the confidence of those that are saying you name it and claim it, but the humility to admit But that even if it doesn't work out that way, the confidence is still there. Because I know this will lead to my salvation. The promise of salvation. He knows that in the future there will come a day, and he speaks of it in other other passages, when, when Christ shall return and the dead in Christ will be raised. He knows that that will be an ultimate day of victory where King Jesus is revealed for all to see where everyone will acknowledge I mean, it gets a little bit later in Philippians chapter two, where one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's already made clear like what's going to happen, so that that perspective is changing how he views this moment of intense suffering for the sake of the gospel. And what's changing him is the promise, the promise of salvation. But notice that it's a promise of salvation that is guaranteed, guaranteed by two things. And just look at it real quick. He says, because I know this will lead to my salvation, verse 19, through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Let's talk about the Spirit of Christ Jesus first. Paul, writing in Ephesians, talks about how in chapter 1, the, the Spirit is the seal of, of God. Basically, almost like his, his signet ring saying, this one is mine. It's a seal guaranteeing, our, our, a, a, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in the saints. And so, in other words, it's being communicated there that it's by the Spirit of God God giving us his Holy Spirit that we reveal that we belong to him. That when he writes in Galatians chapter 5, he communicates that there is the fruit of God's Spirit that should be growing in our lives. I mean, just imagine your life as branches on which the fruit of God's Spirit begins to emerge. That in your weakness, we see his strength. In, in what would other be, otherwise be a situation you would not have love, love emerges. You know, I'm always reminded of the testimony of Corey Tin Boom and how being confined into a concentration camp during the Holocaust, as a woman in her late 50s, she and her, her, her aging sister were both almost killed, she almost killed, but then her sister brutally killed by a soldier that basically kicked her to death because she could no longer sustain the strength to, to stand. And her sister just a couple of di- days later died. And then after the war was over and Corey ten Boom began to share her story of how God had given victory in these camps. And even though there was death all around them, the gospel was spreading and they were having Bible study. They were thanking God for flea-infested barracks where they were because the soldiers wouldn't even come in. It was so bad so that they could meet and have Bible study. I mean, you just see all of this rejoicing in her suffering. But then the day came. When who stood before her was none other than the soldier who had kicked her sister to death. And he is hearing this gospel message proclaimed by Corey Timboom and her testimony of what God had done. And in that moment, Corey said, There was nothing in me that could lift my hand to extend it to this man. But suddenly, as if someone were invading my very body, I felt my arm begin to lift. And I began to feel a warmness invade my soul. In a love that was not my own. As she embraced a soldier who didn't remember her, didn't remember what he had done, but who was now testifying that he too had experienced the forgiveness and grace of God. That's fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's love that comes from above. Brothers and sisters, our lives are to manifest this fruit of the Spirit. And in that moment, Corey ten Boom was, was being testified to by the Spirit of God that she belonged to him, that, that, that he was operating through her. And so it's a confirmation in those moments for each one of us when we say, you know, I don't have joy in this trial, but all of a sudden there is joy. That's the Spirit of God testifying that you belong to him. When you don't have love for a person because they've mistreated you or made your life difficult, difficult, but all of a sudden there is an affection for this person and a brokenness for this person and praying for good in their life and not for harm, that's the Spirit of God testifying in your life that you belong to Him. But notice that that assurance that comes from God's Spirit and the the production of His fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and and self-control, those are all fruit of His Spirit. But notice also He says that I will be saved through your prayers. That should scare us. And not because we have any problem with people praying for us, but every believer that I know says, my prayer life is not so good. And Paul is saying, I am confident that it is through the, 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 the testimony, the, the work, the, the, the movement of God's Spirit in my life, that I will be saved ultimately, and through your prayers. There's an expectation of Paul on the church that we are praying for one another. And it, it's through the prayers that we are praying for one another that he is accomplishing his salvation Lord, make us humble in those ways. God, please make us sensitive to your spirit that when, God, you prompt us to pray for someone, that is for eternal significance. Know this, that when you ask God, God, would you please place on my heart those that I need to intercede for right now and pray for right now, that's a prayer that God wants to answer. And in ways that you may never see. But that is how God has ordained to work his powerful salvation. That salvation that he's promised, but that he's accomplishing right now is through his spirit and through the prayers of the saints. And so know this, that there will be moments in your life when you feel all alone as a child of God. Where you feel like you are completely separated from any true community. Whether physically or just relationally, know this. There's someone I can almost promise you, being prompted by God's Spirit, to pray for you. Sometimes you need to reach out and let that person know. Hey, God put you on my heart today and I'm praying for you. I don't know what's going on, but I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And sometimes you just need to pray. But know this, God is using those prayers. You say, why? Why doesn't he just act? It is his good pleasure to involve us in his work. It's just just what he delights to do. He could, just from the heavens, proclaim the gospel without any of our voices. But he is ordained to use your voice to send you to go and proclaim the gospel. And so it kind of fits with his character when we think about that he would use us also to bring about this salvation in moments when we are going through the darkest, loneliest, most imprisoned times in our life whether literally or figuratively. And so God is working in these ways, guaranteeing his salvation, but don't forget it. It's not a guarantee of situational improvement. Verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And he's putting on the table, this may not work out the way that I want. He's certainly longing for the situational improvement that he gets out and he's able to go back to the church at Philippi and encourage them so they might boast all the more in the Lord. He puts that very plainly. He's convinced in this moment that he is gonna continue to live for their good, for their progress in the faith and for their joy in the faith, all these things. But he's putting on the table, I could be wrong about this one. That's That's that humble humility piece. I don't know how this one works out. But I do know this, that whether in my life or in my death, Christ is to be honored. Christ is to be honored in my life or my death. So just understand this, there is not a guarantee extended to you and to me of situational improvement. Just understand that. That guarantee is not just blanketly given in God's word. And that's important for us to understand because if we think it's always extended, if we just have enough faith, then many of us will be so wounded wrongly thinking that God does not see us, thinking that I just had too weak of a faith. And that's not at all what we see developed in the pages of Scripture. So we see that to have this humble confidence, we must look to God's promise, and then second, we must look to God's purpose. And this is where Paul shifts, and this is that one play, this one way of thinking that I think 100 out of 100 times will change the outcome in your life, and it's this to live as Christ and die as gain. To live as Christ and to die as gain. If there was anything that I would literally etch in the doorpost of my home, it would be this that as I go out every day to remember that as I go out to live as Christ and to die as gain, this is a truth that seemingly was before Paul. Literally was like, like you know the tassels and the little things that they would have in, in the Jewish faith to remind them of the law of the Lord. It was almost like this was that moniker of his life, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that this became his purpose. What's your purpose? What are you living for? What, what really is like the drive of your life? We, we all know this. We look over into business and we understand how important it is for businesses and how important it is for organizations and nonprofits and all of these other things to have a purpose statement. What about you? What is your purpose in this life? Is it something that we just have the liberty now as believers to invent? Perhaps there is some specificity, some specific aspects to what it's going to look like in your life but I can promise you this, it will always fit under this, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that one play, that one way of thinking changes everything. L- look how it changes his life. Number one, it, it, it results in a lifestyle full of fruitful work. A lifestyle of fruitful work. Look at verse 22. He says this, "'Now if I live on in the flesh,' This means fruitful work for me. Fruitful work for me. But what does that mean? What does it look like to have fruitful work in our life? Well, if you hop down to verse 25, he begins to really, I think, hang it out there for us to see. Since I'm persuaded of this, that he's going to remain in the flesh, I know that I will remain and continue with you. But notice why. For your progress and joy in the faith. Fruitful work results in progress and joy in the faith for other Christians. I mean, what if we made our lives so radically about one another that part of the main purpose of our life, and and to live as Christ, to die as gain, is to help others to live to Christ and understand that even death can be gained now in Christ. You say, well, what does that look like? That looks like a life that spreads the gospel. It's all consistent. It all fits together. The call of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, it fits perfectly with this understanding of the purpose of our life is to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul says that if I remain, it is going to be for your progress in the faith. Who are you helping to make progress in the faith? Think about that. You know, A lot of times in the American church, we begin to define fruitfulness by things that we don't see explicitly revealed in Scripture. And they don't have to be at at odds, but if they become the standard of fruitfulness in and of themselves, we've missed it. For example, if we say, well, we're setting a budget as a church for a certain dollar amount, and if we meet that budget, then we are making progress in our faith and are bringing joy to all the believers. We all know that that isn't necessarily the case that we, even as a church at First Baptist New Orleans, could meet our budget, and yet no one make progress in the faith, and no one have a greater joy in Jesus Christ. This room could could fill with more people, which is another way that we begin to measure things is attendance. And again, this is one of those things that's not necessarily at odds. I mean, that can be a way of saying where God is at work, but is our gathering helping you to make progress in the faith and have a greater joy in Jesus Christ? If it's not, then I think we're missing the mark, even if this room was packed like it was when Franklin Avenue Baptist Church was in here at 7 a.m. on Sunday mornings after Hurricane Katrina. It's important for us to begin to allow Scripture to define for us what are the marks of progress. What does it mean for us to be a thriving biblical church? And what is the purpose of my life as it relates to you? You see, the way I'm going to interact with you is going to change when I understand that my life should be lived in service to you to help you make progress in the faith. You say, Well, of course, yeah, you're the pastor, it should be your job. It's your job. You need to own that. It is your job that you would help your brothers and sisters make progress in the faith and find their greatest joy in Jesus Christ. That's an orientation change that changes everything. How am I helping others to grow in their faith? Suddenly you see the significance of our children and youth ministry. Are we helping our students make progress in the faith? Are we training their hearts to find their deepest and greatest joy in Jesus? Or are we training them to find their deepest joy in college athletics? Listen, guilty. Enjoyed the games yesterday. But I hope that overall the impact of my life will train my children that true joy is not found on the roller coaster of SEC sports. It's found in Christ Jesus and in him alone. And that's not just preachy. That's substance. I mean, we've got to do something with that during the week. So how am I making progress? How am I helping increase joy? But then it, it should ultimately result in this, a boasting in Christ Jesus. You see, there's a way sometimes to have an impact on a person, where they boast in me. There's a way for you to, to impact people where they're like, man, like he, he is awesome. She, man, she is an incredible woman, incredible leader. And we do things in such a way that we receive the glory and we receive the credit. There's confidence, and not necessarily humility. But here in this passage, What he lists as this like final thing, he says, so that you may, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. He's kind of painting this picture that if I get out of jail, and and if I live in this instance, and then I come to you, what is going to result is praise to the Lord. And I've shared this story before, but it, it bears repeating that when we learned after our first pregnancy that ended in a miscarriage that we were then expecting ava my daughter my 14 year old there had been a a dear friend a man from ghana whose name is jonathan Kwofi, who was a a freshman at uno had come from ghana who was praying for us and he grieved with us that loss and was then praying with us for this pregnancy and i remember when i went into the fema trailer out in front of Edgewater Baptist Church, in which he was living at that moment, kind of staying in there with another guy that was working for the church, so they're crammed in there. When I went in there that Wednesday night and told him what the Lord had done, that that we were now pregnant again, he didn't grab me by the hand and say, great job, Chad. No, what he did in that moment has had a lasting impact on my life and illustrates perfectly what Paul hopes all of our lives will result in, as God works powerfully within us, is Jonathan dropped to his knees and just began to sing to the Lord a a Ghanaian worship song, just praising the Lord. And it wasn't just for a second. It went on for at least like two minutes. him just praising the Lord and praising the Lord. And then he finally got up. And then he said, I am so thankful to God. Tears running down his face, tears running down my face. But it resulted in praise to God. Brothers and sisters, what if we made our lives to live as Christ so that when others look at us, they drop to their knees. I'm not gonna do it again, and and praise the Lord. Once is enough, right? You had a damage on the knees. And they praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is the life that God is inviting you and I to. It is a lifestyle full of fruitful work, and secondly, it is a lifestyle that doesn't fear death. Verse 20, whether by life or by death. Verse 22, and yet I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I I long to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Don't mistake this. This is not Paul contemplating suicide. This is not Paul contemplating self-harm. Listen, we need to address that. That's a a major issue facing us today. Especially for our students and our children, suicide rates have climbed so high, especially post-pandemic. And so we need to be aware of that, that Paul is not in some Christian way promoting, "Just, just end it. It's, it's going to be so much better up there. Just, just end it. That's not what he's promoting. Not even for one second. He has entrusted his life to the Lord to, to live as Christ. But he understands this, that if my life is taken from me, not if I take my life, but if my life is taken from me, to die is gain. What this means is this man no longer fears death. I don't know about you, but what's your greatest fear? death. If there was one play that you told me would beat this team every time, I would do it a hundred out of a hundred times. Brothers and sisters, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is only true in Christ. It's only true in Christ. And so if you are here today and you are not in Christ, the door is open. Christ Jesus has come, and he has come and given his life for you. In just a moment, we are going to celebrate what is called the Lord's Supper, and in it, we remember his death. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, only until he comes. There is this promise given of one day of salvation that just as Jesus Christ was dead and buried, so he was raised to life, a first fruit, the evidence that that is what will happen to each one of us in Christ, the promise. And that is a promise that many in this room believe and they confess and they're putting their hope in. But I want to challenge each and every one of us, are you living also consistent with his purpose? His purpose for you is that to live is Christ, so that even in death there is gain. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray for the man or woman or boy or girl in this room that maybe has never understood before the good news of Jesus Christ. They may have understood for their entire life that they are supposed to be good and that they are supposed to do good things, but they have never understood that you are a good God who gave your good, perfect, holy son to die for them, to take away their sin forever and to give them life forever, that you extend to them a promise of eternal life but you also give to them a life full of purpose so that they can say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Lord, now as we worship you, for those that are thinking about this gospel, I pray, Father, for them. That as they watch those around them take of this moment and worship you in this way that you have called us to do, they will ponder these things. And Lord, that your spirit would work in them to help them to realize that what they need to do today is to ask you, the living God, who is good for forgiveness and to give their life to you. So God, please, will you work your powerful salvation today in the hearts of each person here? It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to take that little cup that you received. If you did not receive one when you came in today, if you'll just lift your hand and a deacon will be able to provide one to you now if you're here today and you do not identify yourself as a Christian you have not made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and followed him and believers baptism I would encourage you in this moment to just watch just observe think about what these things mean what the scriptures teach about this and why why do we do this this is peculiar that we would take a cup and a little piece of bread to remind us of something. But, but why? Why would we do that? Of all the, the ways that we could remind ourselves, why is it we do it this way? Well, it's because God's word communicates to us that this is exactly what his will was on the night that he was betrayed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when he, Jesus, was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. I'm going to invite you to peel back the, the layer over the bread and to take that in your hand. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. It was a loaf of bread, and he broke it to begin to give to the disciples pieces And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as his disciples, we do this in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice. Now I invite you to peel back the layer over the juice. Then the scriptures continue in the same way. He also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me and so as disciples of Jesus Christ we take and we take in remembrance of Christ and his blood given for us and then Paul concludes for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes promise a promise that we are waiting for brothers and sisters therefore we will live with purpose. One purpose that a hundred out of a hundred times is going to change everything, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Will you stand with me?